a tale of two cities. Charles Dickens, in 1859, published a book with that same title, a novel, actually, A Tale of Two Cities. It was set in um, London and Paris before and during the French Revolution and its reign of terror. The opening line went something like this. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity, meaning unbelief. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We all going direct to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil. The season of despair was the age of incredulity. The age of belief was the age of incredulity. Well, we have this same kind of double emphasis here. Blessing and cursing, depending upon the venue and depending upon where you were. Remember that beginning in verse 13 of this chapter, Elisha takes over. And all is not easy for him. The context is one of bad prophets, uh, those who uh, recommend that uh, Elijah be found, or at least be searched for, that he not be uh, die in dishonor with being uh, unburied, uh, an unburied corpse, and they wanted confirmation of his death. However, in many ways, it was marked by unbelief, the unbelief of his ascension. And that's followed by bad water, and uh, we'll notice that in verses 19 through 22, and what Elisha does to bring healing to the waters, or rather what the Lord does through him because it's the Lord's action. And then in verses 23 through 25, we have a record of bad children and uh, their end. And so this chapter, which seems so back and forth uh, between healing and harm, serves as the accreditation of Elisha and his ministry. Roger Ellsworth, in his little volume on Second Kings, says, Elijah's ministry also features an explosion of miracles, 16 in all. Lorraine Bettner defines a miracle in this way. 
an event in the external world wrought by the immediate power of God and designed to accredit a message or a messenger. A miracle is an appearance of the supernatural within the realm of the natural with the intent of furthering God's purposes. And so Elijah is taken up and waters are healed and uh, children are taken away in judgment. And so the powers of Elijah now are to be found in Elisha and especially in the text before us in two ways. Again, Ellsworth says, these two miracles are tied together by the common thread of a curse. In the first, a curse is removed, and in the second, a curse is put in place. And so you have, first of all, the deliverance of Jericho through a miracle, and the whole event is somewhat uh, outstanding and miraculous uh, anyway, and then the denunciation of Bethel, where a curse is actually pronounced. And so there is, first of all, the performance of a cure, and then later the pronouncement of a curse. So first of all, in verses 19 through 22, the deliverance of Jericho. Now we might think from a sort of cursory reading of the chapter that the wells uh, or water supply had dried up uh, or perhaps that the ground was somehow unproductive, not enough rain, too much rain, whatever the case might be. But it's far more serious, that which Jericho faces is far more serious than that. Literally, the text reads, the water is foul and the country suffers from miscarriages. Miscarriages pick up the sense of the Hebrew in these verses. And then, moreover, in verse 21, Elisha promises that the water supply will not cause death or miscarriages. Now, we don't know what the problem was. A number of suggestions have been made, and it makes for entertaining reading, but we really um, don't know what caused this particular problem with the water supply. But the end result was that pregnancies, both human and animal, ended in miscarriage. They were not brought, children were not brought to term, and that was true in the animal world as well. Dale Ralph Davis writes, the problem is far more serious than unproductive land. There was something lethal in the water supply causing fatalities in livestock and humans. 
Hence, when verse 19 says, the land miscarriages, I take land as a cipher for its occupants, livestock and people. And so the infirmity was serious, and there didn't seem to be any, or certainly not one that was suggested, any kind of a medical or scientific remedy. Now, the locality is important. It's in Jericho. Jericho was under a curse to begin with. After the conquest of the land, God pronounced a curse upon the land and that the city of Jericho was never to be rebuilt and it would be rebuilt at the loss of the lives of the firstborn and the youngest son. And that's exactly what happened. Under Ahab's reign, a man by the name of Hael seeks to rebuild, and he lost his eldest son, Abiram, who laid the foundation, and his youngest son, Segum, when he tried to, uh, as it were, decorate uh, the city, or at least the gates. And you'll find a record of that in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 34. One writer says, Hael had at least two graves as monuments in his achievement. Jericho was the place where a curse was both uttered and inflicted. Jericho is a place under a curse. Now, the most amazing thing about this text is that the place under a curse, one that had been pronounced, and one also that had been afflicted or inflicted, now the city or the town receives mercy. The place under a curse now receives and enjoys and experiences the mercy of God. Davis writes here in 2 Kings, Curseville has become Graceburg. In this, is this incident not a cameo of the Lord's own character? See how he delights to turn the most curse-ridden, sin-laden, judgment-bearing situations into episodes of his grace in living color. And we need to see that in the text, that here is a picture, a symbol of God's grace, of great mercy to those who are deserving the least from him. And so the agency must be symbolic, um, a new bowl, one that had never been used before, and salt. Well, the Dead Sea was nearby, and that doesn't seem to have done much good. So again, it's, it's symbolic of God acting. A new bowl, not used for something else at any time, not having been used. So here is a new bowl, purity, not used for something else. And salt, um, a preservative. 
And so here is the symbol of something new, a new experience, something preserved and changed and altered. Now, the interesting thing here is that if you read the language carefully in verse 21, it is the Lord's word. It is the Lord who acts. It's it's not Elisha so much. In verse 21, it is the Lord who speaks. It is the Lord who acts. It's not that that Elisha is some, some kind of magician, but rather he is acting uh, on behalf of the Lord and he's acting uh, as the Lord enables him. And so here is this announcement. Here is this agency, this way forward, this method. And notice what the result is. Notice not only the authority, but also the immediacy of the cure. The cure is immediate. We don't have to wait. And it's not by degrees. The totality of the, of the cure. It's thoroughness, it's fullness, it's, it's completeness. The permanency, permanency of the cure. Unto this day, the writer of Second Kings says, Unto this day the waters uh, remain healed. And again, we might notice not only the mercy of the cure, but the gravity of the cure, the seriousness of the cure. No coming generations by way of livestock or humanity until the cure is employed. Someone writes, this cure at one and the same time authenticated Elisha as God's prophet and illustrated the true nature of salvation. And here is where we find the application to us, the faithfulness of this cure. God is faithful to his covenant promise to his people. Psalm 101, I will sing of your faithfulness. In other words, I will sing of your covenant mercy, which saves and deliverance. As one writer says, God's word through God's prophet brings God's grace even to Jericho even to those that are under a curse. And it is not that, again, our case and our condition, being born into this world under the curse of sin, of Adam's sin, and ultimately our own sin. And what is it that God does? God saves, God delivers, and that salvation is immediate, it's thorough, it's total It's full of mercy. And we can't see the situation as, we can't see the situation as too grave. Can't see that enough. And so here is a fitting illustration 
from the history of Israel that God performs a cure. And what a cure it is. No further miscarriage. The waters are healed. Now secondly, notice in verses 23 through 25, the denunciation of Bethel. A curse is pronounced against this ancient city. Bethel was marked by idolatry and infidelity. It was a place that Jeroboam, uh, the king of Israel, had set up as a place of idolatrous worship. And you'll find the account in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33. It was a center of what we would, for lack of a better way of putting it, of, of bull worship. He set up two bulls as the means of drawing near to God. One was in Bethel, and the other was in the city of Dan. And his argument for doing so ran something like this, that if I allow the people to go from here, remember the kingdom has been divided, and Jeroboam is the king of the 10 northern tribes, and Rehoboam the king of the two southern tribes. Now, if I if I let the people go to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom to worship God, their hearts will be turned against me and against the kingdom here. So I've got to solve this. And the way to solve it is to set up another uh, place for worship. You don't have to travel. And that was his argument. Look, traveling is too hard these days. You don't want to do that. Um, and so you don't have to do that. Uh, you can do it uh, my way uh, right here in Bethel or in Dan. Now remember that the school of the prophets or schools of the prophets were all around and there seems to have been one in Bethel. And so the people had access in Bethel to the word of God through God's Prophets, And so you here you have these two competing faith systems and two competing religions and two ways of coming before God. You had the academy, you had the seminary, you had the school of the prophets, and now you had Elijah and now Elisha. And so there's no reason there's no good reason. There's no lack of resources um, that would keep you from the worship of the true God. And so what appears to be happening here is that Elisha is passing through town. And not so much literally through town, but on uh, uh, the road that's, that that the goes around and just outside of, of Bethel. And what he encounters are these children or young people, and we don't know how old they are. 
The term that is used here is a term that is somewhat generic, but it also is a term that is is used for servants who would be uh, youths or children, perhaps not in a literal sense of three, four, five, six, and seven, but a little bit older. The point is we don't know how old they were. One writer has said, however old they were, essentially they were young thugs uh, and uh, were similar to uh, the the gangs roaming uh, the streets uh, in some of our major cities today. And they express audacity, hostility, and mockery of this prophet. Somewhere they have learned to discount the prophet. And it's not a stretch, nor do I think it's eisegesis, but this mockery and audacity and indifference or even hostility to the prophet certainly must have been learned somewhere. The general culture of the city. But let's not forget the parents who had a role and a responsibility to teach and to train their children. And so however old they were, they're following the prophet and they're saying, get out of here. That is, go up. And they're probably using the imagery of uh, Elijah's uh, ascension. But whether they mean that magically, why don't you do the same thing? Or they're just mocking him and saying, get out of town. There's no room for you. There's no place for you. We don't want to hear you. We don't want to have anything to do with you. And again, I would submit, or I would ask the question, where did they learn to do this? Certainly the culture and even their parents must have been responsible. Just leave, get out of town. We don't want to have anything to do with you or listen to what you have to say. Now, before we come to Elisha's response, it's interesting to note that there are several texts in the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy, for example, 18 and verse 19 that to reject the word of a true minister of God is to mock God himself. To mock authority is to mock the one who bestows authority, which in this case is God himself. I remember when I was in seminary, I drove a school bus for the county of Los Angeles. It was a great job, paid well, nice benefits, all of the rest. But dealing with the children was another matter. And in the infinite wisdom of the school district, they had set up in some of the suburbs a, 
a one place. I mean, there's scores of homes in this development. And there was only one place to pick up 70 junior high school students. Now, this is in 1971. You imagine trying to do that today. Of course, nobody takes the school bus, I guess. But the point, that's not the point. The point is it was, it was pandemonium. And I would stop in front of them and open the door and they would literally try to tear the doors of the bus off the bus in order to be first on the bus. And it didn't matter what I said, what I did. The vice principal who had played professional football came on the bus one time and one of these tall, lanky kids tried to take him on. I mean, it was just absurd. The whole thing was just absolutely absurd. It was the best of jobs, it was the worst of jobs. It was not much fun. And interestingly enough, Tom Lyon, in preaching through the section, uses the same illustration because we drove in the same, for the same school district. And it's also interesting to observe, and I'm certainly not drawing attention to myself, and I wouldn't want you to think that I'm doing that because I'm not. But the, the ministry has lost in our age something of what it once has. When I went into the ministry in 1972, even unbelievers had respect for a man of the cloth. Now, I don't use that language, and I'm not enamored with it at all. But the, that ship has sailed. Um, and so there's so little respect for the word or for the ministry of the word. And that's not to say that ministers are perfect or they're always right. That's not my point. But there's something to be said for the authority that comes to those who have been appointed by the church seriously and literally. And the point of this text is that they're belittling God by belittling his prophet. And so as Elisha turns and responds, he does not respond through personal peak, uh, P-I-Q-U-E, personal peak or um, uh, hurt uh, feelings, but rather he responds biblically. He responds in the name of God and he becomes the voice of God. And so the severity of, and notice that he doesn't call for the bears to come out of the woods, they come out of the woods. So clearly God is involved once again. To belittle the man of God is to belittle God himself. Or to put it differently, if they had lived to grow up, they would grow up to be bad men. God must be justified and ultimately will be justified as the one who hates sin. And so... This heavy axe, as it were, fell upon them. Dale Ralph Davis 
says this was a covenant curse. Or he goes on to say these were covenant bears. Again, this is not personal revenge for indignity done to himself, but as the mouth of divine justice to punish the dishonor done to God. As Davis goes on to say, here is not an irritable prophet, but a judging God. Matthew Henry writes, here is a curse upon the children of Bethel, which was effectual to destroy them, for it was not a curse causeless. In other words, it was not a curse that was without cause. Matthew Henry puts this in a way that would be difficult for our generation to hear and to appreciate, but I think he's right. He says, let the hideous shrieks and groans of this wicked, wretched brood make our flesh tremble for fear of God. Let little children be afraid of speaking wicked words, for God notices what they say. Let them not mock any for their defects in mind or body, but pity them rather especially. Let them know that it is at their peril if they jeer God's people or ministers and scoff at any for well-doing. And the Anglican Puritan Joseph Hall wrote, In vain do we look for good from those children whose educations we have neglected. And in vain do we grieve for those miscarriages which our care might have prevented. And finally, notice in these verses the continuity between Elisha and Elijah. In verse 25, and he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria, the very places that Elijah had either visited or had come from. Well, several concluding thoughts from this text. First of all, the Lord's word can bring either healing or harm. And it's still the Lord's word. God's word speaks both to Jericho and to Bethel. This is his work in both cases, in both places. God is the God of Jericho and God is the God of Bethel. God is the God of saving grace in the most unlikely places and upon the most unlikely people. And he's also the God of justice who will, in fact, reign judgment upon unbelief. And whatever he does or doesn't do now to bring about justice, certainly the day is coming when he will act as a just judge. And so what does that mean as we seek to reflect upon this ourselves? 
and as we seek to help others? Well, first of all, those with too strong a sense of justice, that is, can never find relief, no matter how many times they claim to have believed, but still don't have a sense of God's mercy. Where do we take them? We don't take them to Bethel. We take them to Jericho. And we say, look at how God approached the city upon whom there was a curse. And he had determined to remove the curse. And Elisha was the means of proclaiming and providing a preservative against that, even as the Father sent the Son for the same purpose to redeem the guiltiest of sinners. It does not matter how guilty the sinner is. As older writers would have said, there's life for a look at the Savior. Look to him. Believe upon him. It's not great faith that saves. It's saving faith that saves. And so look to Christ. And so some people need to be taken to Jericho and saying, you're right. You deserve the worst. But guess what? There is healing to be found. There is a savior to be found, or rather, there is a savior who seeks the lost. Come to him and believe upon him. Here in Jericho is your God. He purifies the most polluted. Thirdly, those without a care for God's authority who mock the word and the ministry of the word, who at best are indifferent, but typically hostile, must be taken to Bethel and not to Jericho. Here was something that was done by divine impulse. As Elisha turns around, God acts and two she-bears come out of the woods and tear those 42 apart. This was God acting. This was not Elisha, again, out of personal pique and offense because he was offended and they called him ball-headed and all of the rest. It's not what's going on at all. What's going on is God defending his name, his cause, his word, and ultimately even his servant. Go up now. They mocked him. Get out of here. On another occasion, there were those who cried out mockingly and in ridicule, come down. Come down from the cross. Show us who you really are. In neither case, did they find satisfaction? 
Now, fourthly, even though most of us are uh, beyond this point in our lives, we do need to recognize that the text implies the fact that parents have a duty to teach their children respect for authority and the authority of the word of God and the authority of the ministry as well. Now, our culture places great claims uh, upon our children and uh, our culture has a great influence upon our families. But we can't give up. And indeed, God has called us to be faithful in seeking to instruct and to overturn the influence of the culture in which we find ourselves. Not to Bethel for worship, but to Jerusalem for worship and with our families. And so finally, what the text tells us and what we've said multiple ways and multiple in different ways in this sermon, in the course of the sermon, God must be glorified and he will be glorified. And he will be glorified in judgment as well as in salvation. That men need to see that he is a God who is marked by justice as well as by mercy. There can be no misrepresentation of the character of God. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, citing Psalm 22, the Lord Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why indeed? The why has to do with God's justice falling upon him for us. And so those who mock God's truth and to mock his messengers is to mock God and turn to idols, invite God's displeasure. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the fullness and the completeness and uh, the totality of your word. You remind us in this text that you are a God who remembers to be merciful. You are the God of saving grace and you save those most unlikely and in the most unlikely places and sets of circumstances. We're thankful for the healing of the gospel. But we're also thankful that you remind us in rather stark figures that you are a God of justice. In fact, even your mercy is is rooted in justice for the curse fell on someone. If it's removed for us, it fell on someone else, namely the Lord Jesus. And at the same time, there is a curse that is to be found upon the wicked and those who are hostile and who mock the things of God and refuse 
to repent and believe. May even this sermon be a warning to any who might be listening, even on sermon audio, who might be listening. May they hear and may they believe again, for there's life for a look at the Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.